we have a media that used to be noble, who has been basically commandeered by those individuals who make excuses for them and hide what is actually going on, the importance of the family when it comes to raising children who are successful and increasing the well-being of a community in general. The facts are undisputable. Benjamin Franklin came out of the Constitution Hall in 1787, and he was asked, sir, what do we have here, a monarchy or a republic? He said, a republic, if you can keep it. We're as close to losing it right now as we ever have been. All right, folks. Welcome back to the Sean Spicer Show. So much going on. Never a boring day, is it? Ben Carson's about to join us, and we're going to cover so much with him. Homelessness, crime, what's going on with families. Uh, plus, will he be the VP nominee? What else would he like to do? And what DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, is doing to medicine? Why you might want to be concerned? We have a great conversation about all of that with Ben Carson. He served in the Trump administration. A lot of scuttle that maybe he's on the ticket as VP. I'm going to ask him about it. Let's get it out there. Let's talk about that. Um, but a lot happened last night. Big Michigan primary last night. Trump romped almost 70% for Donald Trump on the Republican side. Uh, Nikki Haley, of course, vowing to go through Super Tuesday. Uh, I still don't know why. But look, here's my view. We're now less than a week away from her. She has said over and over again, I'm going to stay through Super Tuesday. Well, Super Tuesday is upon us, the 5th of March. 15 states, 874 delegates at stake, including one other territory. It's American Samoa, in case you're interested uh, in knowing that. So a lot to break down. We'll continue to get to that. A big panel discussion headed your way tomorrow. So don't worry, we've got a lot going on. Plus, we'll break down the analysis of that Hunter Biden testimony um, that happened. But the big news coming out of Michigan, in my opinion, was Joe Biden, 100,000 people, 13% of Michigan Democrats voted for uncommitted. Now, you've heard me throw out the stat before, 10,703 10, voters made the difference in 2016 for Donald Trump to win that, 0.22 of a percent. These folks are saying they're not voting for Joe Biden. They're uncommitted and the, they, they're not happy about what he's doing. Uh, they're all Arab Muslims, largely. I mean, obviously a lot more, but that's that's where the big push came from about his policies towards Gaza. Well, that's enough to tip the state right there. Never mind auto workers that might be concerned about some of his policies. Never mind youth. I mean, this is a big deal. Keep an eye on this. Michigan, 15 electoral votes, definitely in play. It It, it is, this is a big deal for the Trump campaign. Uh, by the way, big powwow at the White House yesterday. Speaker Johnson, Leader McConnell, uh, leader Schumer and leader Jeffries. Johnson stood firm. Now the government will shut down this Friday night, at least four departments, one of them, which is HUD. I'm going to ask Ben Carson. That was the department he led. What are the consequences of that? Um, and so I will be able to ask him, does it really matter that some of these departments are closing potentially down? But Johnson stood firm and McConnell was trying to get him to cave and cave. We saw, and then Johnson goes out there and basically stands firm. That again, I, I give him big credit for this. Um, so say what you will, but right now house Republicans are holding firm. I think they need a better message. It's con like, they're not doing the events that are necessary. They're not making a compelling message. So doing the right things, but they got to sell this more. They're going to get out there and talk about no funding for Ukraine until we get a border deal. No, you know, what are we, 
none of these abstract policies that they, the Dems want to jam into these outstanding bills. No, stand firm. We have a House Republican majority for a reason. All right. As I said, we're going to have a great discussion with Ben Carson. We've got a lot to get to. That shutdown, uh, the DEI stuff with doctors. Um, and so, so much to get into with him. And as I said, whether or not he wants to be VP or not, or something else. And before we do that, though, as I, you guys know, we've got some great sponsors of the show. They help make this content free. They're great people. I love the products and the, the organizations that make this show possible. So I want to talk to you about two of them before we get into this conversation. First is my trusted source for precious metals. The folks at Bishop Gold Group, I want to talk to you about them. And then I want to talk to you about my friend, Leo Grillo. You've heard me since the day that this show kicked off, talk to you about the great work that they're doing uh, at deltarescue.org. If you're looking to secure your financial future, there's no better place than talking to my friends at Bishop Gold Group. If you go to bishopgoldgroup.com slash Sean, S-E-A-N, for those of you who don't know how to spell it correctly, uh, you can find out what Bishop Gold Group can do to help you with a old IRA, uh, a 401k, or just to start your journey with precious metals and make an additional investment. I've done it. I called them. I had a conversation with them. If you want to call because you don't want to go online, dial 844-984-1616. Tell them that Sean sent you. You get a free promotional gift with that call or going online, bishopgoldgroup.com slash Sean, right? This is where you can begin your journey and, and and expand your investment portfolio to include precious metals. Like I said, I did it. You get hit up all the time. I know it. I see the commercials for this group or that group, but the folks at Bishop Gold Group are the people that I trust, the people that when I invested in precious metals, I called them, I had a discussion about what was best for me that met, met my needs. You can do the same. Go to bishopgoldgroup.com slash Sean and begin your journey like I did with precious metals as part of your investment portfolio. All right, folks, if you're a longtime watcher of the show, you know about my friend, Leo Grillo. He rescued a Doberman years ago, named the dog Delta. Delta stands for dedication and everlasting love to animals. That was the beginning of what became Delta Rescue. DeltaRescue.org is where you can see the videos of the great work that they're doing. They provide nutrition, veterinarian care to allow animals to roam free in their sanctuary, not a shelter. It's a no-kill, the largest no-kill sanctuary in the world. These animals can roam free. They have a home for life because of the work that Leo Grillo has done, and he needs our help. It's through our contributions, five, 10, a hundred, a thousand dollars, whatever you can spare to make sure that Delta Rescue can provide these services. But more than that, if you go on the website, deltarescue.org, you can see the videos, but you can also see the estate planning kit. And if you're an animal lover like I am, you've rescued a dog, a cat, whatever, you can go on this estate planning kit and make it part of your enduring mission so that Leo's dream continues for life and that these animals will always have a place to get the care that they need. Please go to deltarescue.org, check out that estate planning kit and see if you can help. Dr. Carson, always good to see you. Thanks for joining us. I'm always happy to be with you. Thanks for being a patriot. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. You know, it's funny. I was getting ready for this interview and I started to scroll through the camera roll on my photo. And I don't know if you know this. I posted on Instagram last night, so I don't know how, how much time on the gram you were spending. But almost seven years ago to the day is when we went to the uh, African-American Smithsonian and and joined you and i believe this is what i tell anyone so at least go along with the narrative that i have if you can <laughs> but this was the first time that you had seen the exhibit about you in the smithsonian and i'm there watching you walk through this 
with President Trump. That's correct. I remember that very vividly. How, I mean, I just, I can't imagine what it's like to see an exhibit about yourself anywhere, never mind the Smithsonian, right? You are among, I don't know, an elite group. I don't want to, I don't know, I can't think of the number, but like of people that they're highlighting for their achievements. When you well, stopped, did that, did you, have you just paused and said, wow, like I do all that. I mean, like there's days with, with the rat race that sometimes people that I talk to for a variety of reasons don't say, wow, I never thought, have you stopped and just said to yourself, what an amazing thing that I'm sitting here in the Smithsonian as one of the elite number of people in the United States' history, not in 2017, not in the 2000s, since our inception, you are among that group. No, I think about those things all the time and it gives, you know, fortification to the whole concept of the American dream and uh, that it is alive and well, that people can still achieve it, but they can't accept a victim mentality. I was also pleased that, you know, some of the liberals have made an attempt to push conservatives out of the limelight and uh, that didn't happen in that particular case. So that was good. You know, how hard is it? I mean, since you brought it up, the the orthodoxy since the 1960s, when things kind of got flipped on their head, is that if you're black in this country, you need to be a Democrat and that people who are not have been called all sorts of names. Is it is it a difficult road to swim or to, to, to ride when you're in that position? I think it's a very difficult road for many people. Not so much for myself because my focus is on my relationship with God. As long as I'm in good graces with him, I don't care too much about what anybody else thinks. <laughs> and that helps me quite a bit. Right. But uh, it does cause a lot of other people to be silent. It intimidates people. And uh, that is a very sad thing and something I think that we have to begin more vigorously to fight. You know, it's interesting though, the last couple cycles, um, it was the Republican Party. You go back to your cycle, um, you know, even before that, you, you know, um, th th that's had the diversity. Even this time, you think about the number of people from minority backgrounds that were part of the mix. Now, obviously, President Trump was going to dominate the cycle. We all know that at the jump. But you think about the number of people from different backgrounds. I mean, for what it's worth, I mean, Nikki Haley's got an Indian background. Tim Scott's obviously black. It's it, to me the thing that's so funny is, despite the narrative, it is our party that keeps putting up a diverse group of people for the top job. Well, you know, the interesting thing about the Republican Party is, you know, they have always, you know, relied on merit, and they really haven't been into identity politics. They were formed as an abolitionist party. They were the ones who protected the rights of the freedmen after slavery ended. They were the ones who pushed for the rights for blacks to be able to own guns. They were the ones who pushed for the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Act. And uh, the, the Democrats came along and said, well, the parties actually switched. And uh, the Republicans became the Democrats. The Democrats came, what a bunch of garbage. The only one that switch was strong Thurman. Right. And it has continued to be a, a party that looks at people as people. And uh, President Trump during his administration 
was very successful in decreasing unemployment in the Black community, Hispanic community, Asian community, all communities, because he believed that a rising tide lifts all boats. Uh, don't take this group and put them over that group. Just create a situation where everyone can flourish. The higher salaries, more home buying. During the Trump administration and the African-American community, uh, home ownership reached its zenith. Now, these are the kinds of things that I think some people are starting to notice, and that's why you're seeing the migration toward the Republican Party. So it's interesting because Trump, as you say, has this record, right? Housing, employment, et cetera. What, what is it? What is it that it, it will take? And I, know, and I know President Trump's made headway. I mean, obviously, there's one poll that says he has 22% of, of black men, especially young black men. But what, what is it going to take to shift the narrative? Because it, it seems like society wants to be against you. If you're a young black male or even a female, but where the, where the poll has come from, that makes it hard to be that way, to, to say, I want to be a conservative. Well, remember that the indoctrination has been going on for a long, long time. And you're not going to erase that kind of impact upon people in a short period of time. You know, I myself remember growing up in Detroit, a very liberal place, and Boston, a very liberal place, and New Haven, a very liberal place, and Ann Arbor, a very liberal place. And then to Baltimore, all very liberal places. So I probably would not surprise you to know that I was a Democrat. And uh, I was a staunch Democrat. And then I one day did something that you're not supposed to do as it's a staunch Democrat. I listened to a Republican. <laughs> that Republican was Ronald Reagan. And I said, he doesn't sound like a horrible racist person. I said, in fact, he sounds just like my mother. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I began to evaluate things for myself at that point. You know, I was a young attending neurosurgeon at Johns Hopkins. And I was looking at so many people who were able-bodied people, but were on the dole. And I said, we're not doing these people any favors by making them dependent on the government. And I started working toward finding ways to empower people. And my wife and I started a, a scholarship program uh, that would give scholarships to students starting in the fourth grade. We started putting in reading rooms uh, to encourage young people to really uh, start reading because if you can get a person reading at grade level by the third grade, you change the trajectory of their lives. We uh, now have 282 reading rooms across the nation. Uh, We've done a lot of things to really focus on helping people to get out of poverty. When I was at HUD and President Trump was uh, very much behind me in this effort to create programs that encourage self-sufficiency, because uh, for the longest time, our programs really made people dependent. Uh, they forced fathers out of the home. Uh, they, they were really antithetical uh, to the accomplishment of the American dream and instead created a nightmare for a whole host of people. 
So I, I want to ask you one, or talk a little bit about HUD if you can, but before we do that, uh, in terms of the programs that, that you led and the changes that you made, one of the government, sh- if, if the government shuts down Friday, it'll be four, eight, four departments that are sort of affected. One of them is HUD. If HUD were to shut down, you know, it's funny, I was watching the Today Show and they led with, don't worry, national parks aren't going to shut down as if that's the most important service that, that we have. If HUD were to shut down temporarily, what would the effects be? Oh, you'd have a lot more homelessness. Why? Uh, because you wouldn't have subsidies uh, for people and they don't have the income to be able to afford places. Affordability issues are killing us as a nation. And it's because of all the regulatory burdens. It's not that we haven't learned how to create affordable housing. It's that we have not learned how to use affordable housing. You take something that costs $150,000 to create. And then by the time you get through loading all the regulations, you're talking about $600,000. Well, who can afford that? And uh, you have people in places like Los Angeles who actually have jobs, make forty, fifty thousand dollars a year. There's no way they can afford any place to live. Well, it's funny. I live just outside the nation's capital in Virginia, and there's this constant. And my city is controlled by all leftists, and they constantly are trying to have affordable housing. And to me, it's like pushing a rock up a hill because capitalism will always prevail. The problem is they keep trying to build affordable housing and then the people move into it and then the value of the property rises and then they go, gosh, that $50,000 place is now worth 80,000, more people can't, so let's build more. What is the answer? Or is it just to say, hey guys, you gotta drive farther to get in? (laughs) I mean, seriously, like I I don't understand how you, to me, I, I know it sounds silly, but they keep trying to push that. That's why I'm saying it's like a rock up a hill because if you wanna keep building housing, where there's a high demand, maybe you can allow it to, it's like, you know, Taylor Swift tickets where they come in, you know, and then everyone starts to resell them right away at twice the cost, three times the cost. So you can get somebody in there at 50 grand. That's great. They're the first owner. Well, number one, they're going to be smart and realize how soon can I sell this for 80 or 90 or hundred and make a ton of money. But then secondly, you know, the, the people who just naturally start to ebb and flow are going to come in at a higher rate too. And then the city says, well, we need to build another set of affordable housing. And it, it's the same process starts all over again. Well, the key factor really is regulatory control. We had the White House Council on eliminating barriers to affordable housing. There were eight federal agencies involved and we worked with the local agencies as well as the nonprofits, the for-profits and the faith-based organizations. That coordinated effort resulted in a lot of affordable housing. That's the only way to do it. Uh, if you have various forces competing against each other and fighting each other, uh, you'll never get there. And that's what we have so often now. And I wish that the current administration would adopt the same kind of policy where it doesn't matter if it's Democrats or Republicans. What matters is what we achieve for the people because homeless people are Democrats and Republicans and independents and people who have no political affiliation at all. They just want a a warm bed and a food in their belly. 
Hey, folks, during a time of crisis, are you going to be prepared? You know, when I was White House press secretary, we spent a lot of time going through contingency operations and making sure that we were ready in an emergency. The question is, will you be? You will be, though, if you go to fourpatriots.com slash Spicer. Get the Patriot Power Generator 2000X to make sure that when the power goes out, whether it's an hour or a day or even a month, you will be ready. You will be able to plug in your TV, your computer, your phones, your medical devices, and yes, even your refrigerator. The beautiful thing about the Patriot Powder Generator 2000X is it runs off a solar panel, and that solar panel comes with it for free. So during a time of crisis, you will have the power that you need. The Patriot Power Generator is portable too. You can bring it in your house. And unlike a gas-powered one, you have to worry about filling and refilling. The Patriot Power Generator has no fumes, and no noise. You can keep it in your kitchen if you wanted to power your refrigerator. You can put it in your car if a friend or a neighbor needs help. But during a crisis, during an emergency, this is what you're going to need. Get ahead of the curve. Be ready for yourself and your family by getting the Patriot Powder Generator 2000X. Go to fourpatriots.com slash Spicer now. When I go into Washington, D.C., I've been here almost 30 years, at least from what I can see. It looks like the homeless population has grown. And, and when I talk to people in other cities, they say similar things. Is it growing and why? Yes, uh, the point in time evaluation that is done each year by HUD in January, uh, the last one for which we have the complete data is 2023. We had 653,000 homeless people. That was up 12% from 2022. Uh, so we don't really seem to be making a heck of a lot of progress uh, in recent years, but it's going to take a sustained effort. You know, the big deal a few years ago was housing first, get people off the street. And that became sort of the cry, housing first. And it is good to get people off the street and it actually costs society less money when you get them off the street. But you can't stop there because 90% of those people end up back on the street. You also have to have housing second and housing third. Housing second, you diagnose the reason that they're on the street. And housing third, you fix it. Recognize that 60% of those people are drug addicted or have psychiatric problems. Now, if you can get appropriate counseling and medications for the ones with psychiatric problems, I was talking to the head of the American Psychiatric uh, Association. He said the vast majority of those people could become functional. And, uh, you know, as far as the drug addiction is concerned, this is a serious problem. And it requires long-term rehabilitative care in a professional manner. Are, are the solutions that you're talking about, when you, when you were Secretary of HUD and you would go meet with governors and mayors, of different parties, because the big cities are all controlled by Democrats, right? When you right. would go reach out to them, did they want to partner with you or did they say, gosh, Mr. Secretary, we just fundamentally disagree with your approach? No, even in a radical place like Los Angeles, we were able to get uh, Eric Garcetti uh, on board, along with the uh, various county supervisors, uh, Gavin Newsom. We actually have put together a pretty dynamic plan that was ready to kick off 
And then COVID hit, <laughs> everything kind of went off the table. But I think it is possible for us to work together. Uh, you know, I did some things even with the, the mayor of New York, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there are things that can be done. But why, but why wouldn't they, I, here's what I don't get. Why, why aren't they being like, if, if, if they reach out to you and, or you reach out to them and they say, great, great partnership, COVID's over. Like, why aren't they reaching back to the next HUD, which is frankly their own party and saying, okay, guys, we had this plan with Dr. Carson that was ready to roll. We, we, we think this could help us. Like, it just seems to me as though that we talk about this all the time. It grows. We walk through the streets of these big cities and see it. Like what, what, is it that they don't want to tackle it? Is it that it's too big? What, what is the problem that prevents us from, from making a dent in it? It really requires uh, someone or a group of people who are very dedicated to the idea. Uh, One of the reasons that I wanted to be the secretary ahead is because of the way that I grew up and what I saw. Uh, in these poverty-stricken areas and the attitudes of people and things that, that, that took perfectly capable people and made them into dependents of the government. Uh, so I was very, very dedicated to that mission. And uh, when you have someone who's dedicated, it tends to draw other dedicated people and you can get things done. But, you know, time ran out. And we just yeah. have to continue to focus on these kind of issues when we get reasonable people. Uh, how much is place. how much is his is ownership part of this? Like, does it does it that they that people who get government housing need to have feel like that it's theirs and that they they want to improve it? I, I mean, I've heard both sides of the argument that once they feel like they own it, they're a lot more invested in it versus somebody who's just being put in a temporary place that's not theirs. Well, ownership is, is key. And what you need to understand when it comes to the accumulation of wealth in America, the average renter has a net worth of $5,000. The average homeowner has a net worth of $200,000. That's a 40-fold difference. Right. And we need to be doing things that encourage ownership. And a lot of our policies that are longstanding do exactly the opposite. And I felt it would be easy to get people on board with that on Capitol Hill. Right. There are a lot of people on Capitol Hill, particularly on the other side of the aisle, who have no interest in getting people out of poverty. See, no I, I'm glad you said that. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm so, I'm, I apologize for interrupting you, doctor, yeah. but like that to me is exactly the issue that, that, that the Democrats and the left, once people don't depend on them anymore, and tell me if I'm wrong on this, but I'm like what you just said rung a million bells in my head. That's the problem. They are their entire party and movement is predicated on people being dependent on government and the programs. Unfortunately, that is absolutely true, and deceiving people. And the unfortunate thing is that we have a media that used to be noble, who has been basically commandeered by those individuals who make excuses for them and hide what is actually going on. And unfortunately, uh, to have a country that is run by the will of the people, you need to have people who are well-informed. The reason that the press is the only business that's protected by our Constitution is because they were supposed to disseminate 
information that was unbiased to the people so the people could be well-informed and could make good decisions. But instead, they have decided to place their thumb on the scale. And unfortunately, for people who are already not well-informed, it just increases the problem. Uh, All you have to do is look at some of these man-on-the-street interviews where they ask them very simple questions about how our government works or about our history. They have no clue. Yeah, Those kinds of people are very easy to manipulate. Yeah, it it is appalling how bad this is. Uh, The last thing I want to ask you about the housing issue is how much of this is related to family issues, i.e. the lack of fathers in families and the breakdown of the nuclear family because this whole woke redefinition of what's good and bad says, well, the nuclear family, man, that's just a, that's something that, you you know, was perpetrated on us and that we don't need that. And yet I I think that the lack of fatherhood has a huge impact on this. Well, I wrote an op-ed about that that appeared on on Monday in the Baltimore Sun, uh, that that is the key number one issue, the breakdown of the family and particularly the fatherlessness. Now, you know, a couple of decades ago, Uh, some of the social scientists were talking about how that was such a big problem in the African-American community and was responsible for the tremendous uh, crime and lack of accomplishment. Well, unfortunately, that fatherlessness, that family dysfunction has spread to the entire community now, not just the African-American community. And we are seeing the results in spades doesn't mean it's not too late to fix it. But first, if you're going to solve a problem, you first have to recognize that it exists. So what do you do? What What is the end? I mean, because right now we've changed. I mean, I remember under Clinton and then even the beginning of Obama, it was how do we, inst- how do we create policies that help keep families together? Now, the left is telling us, well, it's a joke. We shouldn't even care about the nuclear family. That was, that's a completely right-wing theory that nuclear families are strong and good. We've been told, don't worry about it. It's a bad thing. And and so how do we mm-hmm. get back to creating policies that keep families together that appreciate and welcome fatherhood? Well, we have to begin to have open discussions about it. Uh, the left does not like to discuss things, as you've noticed. <laughs> yeah, no. And they, they like to put people into their respective corners and throw hand grenades at each other. But if we have discussions with the facts in the middle of the table, the facts are undisputable. And even a lot of the left-wing sociologists will verify through their research the importance of the family when it comes to raising children who are successful and increasing the well-being of a community in general. There are multiple studies and books about that. Um, But if you don't talk about it, you won't know about it. And uh, a lot of the, the left-wing media, they will not talk about these issues at all. And the people who only listen to that don't even know the other side. So I want to continue with this DEI thread uh, that we've talked about, this wokeness, into the other, the real big part of your career in, in medicine. Ben Shapiro 
put out a thread the other day about DEI. And, and I want to read you the first part of it. It says, DEI in medicine means that even if doctors injure patients, they might still be protected and even promoted. It means that top hospitals are abandoning key metrics when hiring surgeons, which is what you do. And it means research by whites may be disregarded. Here's what I found. And then he begins a thread. Let me just get you to react to that first part first. One, how true is that? And B, how concerning is it if that's true? Well, unfortunately, it is true. When we uh, disregard a person's uh, capabilities and background, you're not really doing that person any favors either because you're putting them in an environment, in a situation that's very difficult for them to overcome. And then uh, they begin to have doubts about their own capabilities. Uh, Having said that, there are a lot of... Uh, minorities who do extremely well in medicine. Of course, uh, who do you, well you being well. one of them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, given the uh, appropriate uh, opportunities. But giving people opportunities does not mean lowering standards. Giving people opportunities means creating the pathway so that they have all the skills and knowledge that are necessary to achieve at the highest levels. We don't lower the standards, we elevate the people. That's the way it's done. And to to show you how silly the DEI stuff is, you know, I'm the uh, chairman of the Nominating Governance Committee of a Fortune 500 company. I sit on a number of boards, but on this one I am for that. And the Glance Lewis people recently recommended against me being. Uh, Who are the Glass Lewis people? Were, I'm sorry. Oh, these are supposed investor uh, relations okay. uh, advocates. And they said, you shouldn't vote for Carson uh, because they only have 25% women on their board. Uh, we did have 33%, but we added a board member and that changed the ratio. But so didn't you, what, wasn't the simple else. answer just to identify as a woman then? Yeah, exactly. But the stockholders didn't listen to them, and they voted me back anyway. But here's but so so just so clear, they didn't ironic. want they didn't want a respected black man who had broken. I mean, just with all of these accomplishments that are in the Smithsonian, because they wanted another woman. Yeah, exactly. Well, the thing that's so <laughs> silly about that is if people had voted me off, then they would have a diversity problem. <laughs> I know. I mean, wasn't the, but, but, but wasn't the real reason that you weren't the kind of minority that they wanted? It, I mean, isn't that what we're really dancing around right now? Unfortunately, it is. Yeah. And it's just absurd. And just to tell you how absurd all of this, this stuff is that's going on, remember the mayor of Boston? Yeah, Michelle Wu, right? Yeah, the Christmas party, no white people could come. Well, why didn't a bunch of white people just go anyway and say, we identify as black? Isn't that a lot easier than a man identifying as a woman and vice versa? That would have been (laughs) wicked smart. But I, I mean, here's what I wonder, though. I would be, if I'm someone like you, who has accomplished so much in this field, and watch what happens to your point about if they lower the standards, doesn't that diminish the accomplishments of people like you who have 
endured all this adversity and it succeeded. And it minimizes, I think, the achievement of people who did succeed by saying, we'll lower the bar for other people. Uh, w- without question. And, you know, I, I personally know a number of Black physicians who graduated from major medical schools, number one in their class. No one seems to talk about that. They all but the thing is... They want to make you seem like the the black people who got through got through because of affirmative action. Right. But the thing is, is that like I'm one of these guys. Right. Uh, And you know what what it's like for most men. They they don't go to the doctor that often. But but when I go in and the doctor says, "Okay, Sean, here's what you need to do here. You know, going to prescribe you this or you need to do these exercises, whatever it is. I go. All right. I mean, if the doctor walks in, I had a problem with, you know, a a shoulder and he walked in and said, "Okay, here's you're going to I need you to go to PT first. Let's see. My view is when the doctor tells it, you guys are the ones with the degrees. I trust you. And it feels like this is undermining the field of medicine. I'm going to walk in and go, oh, I don't know. Was that the right advice or did that, you know, and, and that's, that's not the way you should feel when you go see a doctor. You should feel like they're giving you their sound advice. But what's happening in these schools, and this is what, um, like, just to give you a hand, this is one of the other things pieces of the thread that Ben Shapiro put out. He said, this is the norm in medicine. Meet award-winning Duke surgical resident Vinish Raman. At an internal DEI lecture, Raman says that, quote, his heart sinks when he has patients who watch Fox News or wear MAGA hats. Then he celebrates having a majority non-white population to treat. It's not just lowering the standards. It's them saying, now I got a vendetta to play out with these patients. Well, remember, a lot of these people have been indoctrinated since they were in grade school, certainly indoctrinated in college. And by the time they reach medical school, they're ripe for this kind of malignancy to infect their their brains and their whole way of thinking. But we needn't give up. We need to fight vigorously and get people to understand. And it should be easier for physicians to understand that when you take open the scalp and take that skull piece off and open the dura, you're operating on the thing that makes that person who they are. The skin color doesn't make them who they are. The shape right. of the nose or the texture of the hair doesn't make them who they are. It's the brain that makes them who they are. And if you're so superficial as to believe that it's the hair and the skin, that's not saying a lot for your intellect. Right. Um, let me pivot to a second. You brought up COVID a moment ago in, in, with respect to the work that you're doing at HUD. Let me meld these two together. I, As I said, when I go see a doctor and they tell me to do something, generally speaking, I'm going to do it. It's, you know, you need surgery. Uh, you need to be prescribed this. You need to exercise like this. You need to, whatever it is, right? I follow their advice because I assume they're the subject matter expert. So you go see a orthopedic. If you've got a, a bone issue, you, you know, whatever, you go various doctors for various things. After COVID, I feel like the medical industry took a big hit and lost a lot of public trust because of some of the things that they told us to do that we now know weren't based in, you know, as Dr. Fauci likes to say, science. The whole six feet thing, testifying Mm -hmm. in front of Congress that he basically made it up. How much damage do you think the medical industry as a whole did to itself based on what they did through COVID? It was enormous. It's going to take a long time, as you say, to rectify that uh, once again. 
but uh, do recognize there were a lot of people in the medical community who vehemently opposed that, uh, the government's position on that. And they were shut down, they were canceled, all kinds of things happened to people. Some people lost their licenses. Uh, they had all kinds of threats leveled against them. So remember, there, there were a number of strong advocates uh, who were right in the long run. But there were also a lot of people in the medical profession who lost their jobs, particularly a lot of nurses, uh, because they refused to be vaccinated or go along with the program. No one ever apologized to them. No. Even though we know that, uh, you know, they were right. And the same thing with the military people. And think about all those Green Berets and, and Navy SEALs and just very talented people who protect our country who lost their jobs and who, who lost their status. Uh, and they were right. This is really very sad. Let me... um. I know we're winding up. I want to ask you a question. You talked about why you wanted to serve at HUD. As Trump, you know, last night was Michigan. Um, he barrels through this nomination. He's going to be the nominee. He's beating Biden now. Biden ends, number one, a lot of speculation about you as a running mate. Where do you come down on that? Have you had a conversation with him? Uh, I've had general conversations with him about the fact that we are going to continue to work together to try to save this country, recognizing that it is in dire straits right now. And, you know, it was Benjamin Franklin came out of the Constitution Hall in 1787. He was asked, sir, what do we have here, a monarchy or a republic? He said, a republic, if you can keep it. We're as close to losing it right now as we ever have been. And, you know, we have to put aside some of our other plans and do what's necessary to save this country. So is that, a, that's a yes. I mean, you, if he asked, you're in. I'm going to be helping either from the inside or the outside. <laughs> All right. Let me ask this a different way. Let's say that he, he wants someone else to be vice president. Would you want to go back to HUD? Is there another department that you would want to lead? I think, I think it may be premature to be discussing that. Okay. Got first well, then, let me, let me just, let me end. <laughs> Smart. You're getting very political, doctor. Uh, smart. You, you, you definitely learned the ways. Um, let me just ask this last question then. I, I know when, since you left, you founded the American Corner Institute. What are you guys doing? What are the big projects that you guys are leading and why did you want to take them on? Well, you know, I was planning to retire after uh, the Trump administration, but uh, a few weeks afterwards, looking at the direction that things are going. And I said, I can't retire. What joy could I derive playing golf or cruising around the world and watching my country go down the tubes? That would be no fun. So a bunch of very talented people from HUD joined me in forming American Cornerstone, focusing on those things that made our country great. We didn't go from a ragtag bunch of militiamen to the pinnacle of the world by coincidence. It was because of our faith liberty, sense of community, respect for life. So those are the things that we emphasize. Big programs very rapidly expanding are things like our little Patriots program, which is which I call the inoculation to indoctrination. <laughs> <laughs> and we teach the children the principles 
of our country and the history, the real history, the good, the bad, and the ugly, but there's a lot more good than there is bad and ugly. And uh, it's all free of charge. It's a, a marvelous program, littlepatriotslearning.com. And then we have the executive branch for America because there are 4 million uh, employees of the executive branch in this country. When a new president comes in, he gets to change 3,000 of them. We need to get a lot more people who understand and love America into the executive branch so we can balance things off. I agree. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, some great work. And like I said, it's all free, which is great. Uh, people can go to your website. We'll put it the link in the in the bio here uh, for those of you who are looking, uh, watching this on the first, you can go to the YouTube or rumble page and it's in there as well. Uh, Dr. Carson, I appreciate you being with us as always. Thank you for your service to the country and continuing to serve, uh, and, and taking up these amazing efforts to get our next administration set, but also get the next generation on track, which is what you're doing with the little Patriots program. Check it out, folks. It's, it's in a lot of schools right now. Alaska has really done a great job with it, but if you want it in your school, go to, go to the website that he mentioned and, and you will see what we can do in many, many more schools to help the next generation. Dr. Carson, thanks for being here. Folks, tomorrow we got a great panel. Uh, you're not going to want to miss it. A lot to break down. Please continue to subscribe. YouTube, Rumble, Spotify, Apple, you know where it all is. It's super helpful to be there. Hit the notification button. We'll see you back here tomorrow on The Sean Spicer Show. Thanks.